this morning with a little Bible humor. What is a dentist's favorite hymn? Crown him with many crowns. What kind of man was Boaz before he got married? Ruthless. Thank you, Logan. When was the first math homework problem mentioned in the Bible? When God told Adam and Eve to go forth and multiply. And finally, an elderly woman had just returned home from an evening church service when she realized there was an intruder in her home. Seeing that he was in the act of robbing her home of its valuables, the lady yelled, Stop! Acts 2.38. Hearing her, the burglar stopped dead in his tracks and stood motionless. The woman calmly called the police and explained what was going on. As the officer cuffed the man to take him in, he asked the burglar, why did you just stand there? All the lady did was yell a Bible verse at you. Bible verse, said the burglar? I thought she said she had an axe in 238. <laughs> so as I thought about this passage this morning, a couple of things stood out. One, life could be funny. Life could be unpredictable. Life could be surprising. And sometimes you just have to laugh as life happens. Two, there are times in life when you may want to laugh, but in reality, it's no laughing matter. And then third, God has a sense of humor. So when I think about times that we may laugh, and in, but, but in reality, the situation that occurs is no laughing matter, I think of practical jokes. Now, practical jokes may be funny, but they're usually at the expense of someone else, and they probably don't find it too funny. I'll tell you a secret about me. Um, I really... Love the TV show MASH. It's my favorite TV show of all time. But when I thought about this idea of practical jokes, it made me remember an episode of MASH. And in this episode, it's almost April Fool's Day. Hawkeye, BJ, and Winchester are getting into the spirit by pulling pranks. Colonel Potter learns that the 4077th is about to be inspected by Colonel Tucker, who's a fire-breathing, Army regulation-quoting martinet, who, according to Potter, picks his teeth with a rusty nail. And he puts the kibosh on all tomfoolery. But going against Potter's direct order, Hawkeye, BJ, and Winchester get back at Margaret, who has recently pranked all three of them. After she finds her tent missing, she storms into the men's tent where waiting for her in Hawkeye's cot is a skeleton, which elicits a scream from her. The guys laugh in delight, causing a pillow fight, which spills out onto the compound right into the path of the incoming Tucker, who was not amused and he berates them all, including Potter. The next day, Tucker has nothing but criticism for the medical staff, hurling insults and sarcasm when they protest his lack of respect for their surgical prowess. After a confrontation outside, Tucker puts them all on report, tells me he plans to bar them from all medical service and have them court-martialed. Hawkeye, BJ, Margaret, and Winchester decide that if they're going to get busted, they may as well go out in style, pulling off one last giant prank on Tucker. In the officer's club, they set it up that when he asks for his trademark beverage, a bucket of it will be dumped on him from the rafters. So after this happens, he's, Tucker's apoplectic, red-faced with rage, and after screaming at Hawkeye, he collapses on the floor with an apparent heart attack. Talk about a time when a practical joke is no laughing matter. The officer's club goes silent, 
Colonel Tucker asks for Hawkeye to come closer. As he gets in close, he whispers, April Fool's. It turns out that this was an April Fool's plot hatched by the, both Colonel Potter and Colonel Tucker weeks in advance, pulled off to, to perfection. But practical joking can really get out of hand, and at times it's no laughing matter. In our scripture this morning, found in Genesis 17, 15 to 27, God continues to give additional information to Abraham about the covenant that he's making with him. We'll see that by Abraham's reaction, he thinks God must be playing the first April Fool's joke on him in history. And all Abraham can do is laugh. But God is totally serious about the promise he's made to him. To, to Abraham, what God has just told him is seemingly impossible. And as we dive into our scripture this morning, we'll see that when God says he will do the impossible, it's no laughing matter. And that brings us to the big idea this morning, which is we can trust God to do the impossible. God is in the business of doing the impossible. And Abraham and his descendants will find this out as we continue to study Genesis. And God can and will do the impossible in our lives as well. So before we, before we dive in, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on us this morning as we seek the truth that we find in your word. Help us to believe in your promises no matter how impossible they seem to us. Let us hold on to the fact that you are all-powerful and that you can do the impossible in our lives, our families' lives, our churches, and in the world. Please guide us this morning in the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So our scriptures found this morning in Genesis 17, 15 to 27. There are two points. First one is God's promises, and that's found in verses 15 to 22. This is what God's word says. Then God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarai, you shall not call her by the name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, give birth to a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking to him, God went up from Abraham. So if you remember a couple weeks ago, we saw that the Lord appeared to Abram. He confirmed his covenant with him. He changed his name to Abraham. He promised that he would be the father of many nations, and again promised that the land of Canaan would be an everlasting possession to him and his descendants. He then commands Abraham to circumcise every male in his household, including himself, and every male eternally for generations to come. Circumcision was to be the sign of the covenant between God and his chosen people, and anyone who was not circumcised would be cut off for breaking that covenant. 
The first thing we notice this morning in our scripture is that God is still talking to Abraham. And he tells him that he's no longer to call his wife Sarai, but Sarah. The changing of a person's name was significant. When you named something, it was a privilege to do so, and you had authority over it. Such as when God allowed Adam to name the, the animals. Names also represented blessing and destiny, such as when parents name their children. The names often expressed their hopes and dreams for them. The renaming of Sarah brought her into the covenant just as Abraham was, because the child of promise would come from her. Interestingly, Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose name was changed. Second thing we notice is that it is God who changes her name. So normally, it would have been the husband who changed the wife's name. But this was done because the Lord was the one who would go on to pronounce the blessing on her. The Lord would bless her and give, her, give Abraham a son by her. She would also be the mother of nations and kings of peoples would come from her. So the names Sarai and Sarah both mean princess, but there is a subtle change in the way the word is used. There's a quote from Charlie Garrett in, in his sermon, The Promised Son, A Time for Laughter, that explains it well. Sarai is like a princess, as if she is in a room with many princesses. But Sarah is like the princess. She is over all the princesses and the mother of all the people who would come from her. Sarah would be a princess because she would be the one to bear the promised child. Just as Abraham was to be the father of many nations, she would be the mother of many nations, and kings of people would come from her. From Sarai came King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and many other kings, and ultimately from her came Jesus, the King of Kings. So as God is telling Abraham that Sarah is going to give him a son, he again, he falls face down in worship, like we saw back in verse 3, two weeks ago. But this time, as he falls face down, he laughs, and he comments to himself. We can imagine that he's probably thought that God was joking. But what did Abraham mean by his laughter? Most, commentar most commentators do, do not see it as a laughter of unbelief. Some see it as a laughter of joy, and others as laughter of doubt mixed with faith. We have seen Abraham's doubt mixed with faith before in chapter 15 when he questioned God about how the land of Canaan could really be his and his descendants when he didn't even possess it at the time. But it was also probably laughter brought on by surprise. For a split second, he must have been thinking, okay, God, you got me. That's a good one. But Abraham is thinking that what God is promising is impossible. There's no way that a son can be born to a man who's 100 years old and that a woman can bear a child at 90. But ultimately, Abraham knew that God was all-powerful, and he trusted that God could and would do the impossible. But Abraham is thinking in his humanness at this moment. You can imagine, we see Abraham doing some fast thinking, some fast talking, as all this must have flashed through his mind quickly. But what came out of his mouth was not what he was probably thinking, but a comment that showed a doubt tempered by faith, but also a love for his son. So we see God's answer to Abraham in verse 19. God knows Abraham's thoughts, and he answers his question about a man having a son at 100 years old and a woman bearing a child at age 90 with this. 
Okay, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing just a little bit. No. Humanly speaking, that is impossible. But Sarah is going to have a son, and he will be called Isaac. God's covenant would be established with Isaac, and an everlasting covenant would be established with his descendants. God is going to do what Abraham sees as impossible because it's part of his plan for the salvation of the world. What is impossible for man is not impossible for God. We notice a few things in verse 19. God gives Abraham the name Isaac for his son before he is even born. This can remind us of John the Baptist and Jesus. Second, we know that names have meanings. So in Matthew, the angel tells Joseph to name his son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus comes from the Greek for Joshua, which means God is salvation. Do you know what the name Isaac means? Logan? It means he laughs. Here's where I believe we see God's sense of humor. God says the 90-year-old Sarah is going to have a son. Abraham laughs at that impossibility, and immediately God tells him to name his son Isaac, which means he laughs. I wonder if Abraham thought about why God told him to name his son Isaac. Was it because he and Sarah later on laughed? Or was he thinking God got the last laugh? But Isaac actually means God has laughed, or smiled, or looked favorably upon. And what we'll see later is that Isaac will bring laughter and joy to his family when he is born because God has looked favorably on Abraham and Sarah. We can trust that when God promises to do the impossible, he can and will do it, and it's no laughing matter. It will be fulfilled. Which brings us to the first next step on the back of your communication card this morning, which is a trust that God can and will do the impossible in my life. Whatever that is for you, you can claim that promise today and see what God will do. Last thing we notice there is that, again, God elects the younger son to be the conduit through which the covenantal line, the line that will bring his son, Jesus Christ, will come into the world. We've already seen this with Seth being chosen over his older brother, Cain, Shem being chosen over his older brother Jephthah, and even Abram being chosen over his older brother Haran. And we'll also see it later as Jacob is chosen over his older brother Esau. So I also learned something new from this passage that I never knew before. From chapter 12 until now, this is the first time that Abraham has heard that he and Sarah were going to have a child together. God had promised that Abraham would have a son, but it's not until now that a son was promised to come from Sarah. No wonder he laughed. Abraham must have been stunned to learn that Ishmael was not the son that God had, pr had promised to him so long ago. His son Ishmael was precious to him, and he even considered him to be his heir. But for the last 13 years, Abraham may have been living under the impression that Ishmael was the son of promise. Think about the relationship they must have had. All of Abraham's love all of his hopes and dreams have been poured into his son. You know, he may have even discussed the covenantal destiny with him. Abraham has not seen Ishmael as the obstacle to the covenant, but probably as the solution. So as Abraham quickly recovers from his surprise, he suggests that God might work out his purposes in Ishmael. 
Abraham uses the phrase, if only. And it's the only time in the Bible that God is addressed this way relating to the future. It was Abraham's prayer that God would favorably look and smile upon Ishmael and provide for him. God not only knew Abraham's thoughts, but he also heard Abraham's prayer on Ishmael's behalf. And in verse 20, we see God's answer to that prayer. In his mercy and grace, he complies with his request and promises to bless Ishmael, making him fruitful and greatly increasing in number. He was going to be the father of 12 rulers, and he would become a great nation. Later in Genesis 25, 12 to 16, we see these words. Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's slave woman, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Neboeth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jator, Mephish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps. Twelve princesses according to their tribes. So, of course, we know that Ishmael was also the father of the Arab people. God's promise that he would be fruitful and increase in number would be fulfilled. He would participate in the earthly blessings, but Isaac would participate in the spiritual ones as the child of promise. God then tells Abraham that Sarah would bear Isaac by this time next year. Then as soon as God finished talking to Abraham, he went up from him. Just as suddenly as he appeared to Abraham, he just as suddenly left him. So the meaning is that God visibly ascended in front of Abraham. There was no doubt as to who he was speaking with. Second point this morning is Abraham's obedience. And this is seen in verses 23 to 27. This is what God's word says. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael, and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised then as God had told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household, were bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. So we can notice when Abraham fulfilled his part of the covenant, it says he did it on that very day. This is a chronological phrase and is also used in other momentous occasions in the Bible. It's used in Genesis 7:12 when Noah and his family entered into the ark. It's, it's used in Exodus 12:41. When at the end of the 430 years, all the Israelites left Egypt. And in Joshua 5.11, when the Israelites first ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan. And then the very next day, God stopped supplying manna from heaven. By obeying God immediately, it showed that Abraham did have faith that God would give him a child by Sarah. We see these words in Romans 4, 18-21. Against all hope... Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. 
and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. There's no waiting around. He obeyed God immediately and exactly as he had been instructed. We can see Abraham's obedience in three ways. The first way was with his personal obedience. You know, remember Abraham was 99 years old. Circumcision was probably not something he was looking forward to at that age, but he did it immediately. We can also surmise that he circumcised himself first. Corson says it was important that even Abraham deal with his flesh in this way, even though he was 99 years old. You know, as we get older, we may think that you know, we don't need to pray or serve or do Bible study. I've already learned as much as I can. I'm too old to be stretched spiritually anymore. Not so with Abraham. We should be the kind of people that tells the Lord, we've, done some great, we've had some great days here at Audeville Church, but what do you have for us now? The second way was with his parental obedience. It was important that as the spiritual leader of his family, he circumcised his son Ishmael, who, we, who was 13 years old, years old at the time. It's mentioned three times in our passage that he was circumcised. He was not left out of being blessed, even though he wasn't going to be the child of promise. This was keeping with the Lord's promise in Genesis 12 that all peoples would be blessed through Abraham. God is not going to exclude anyone from the blessing and will include everyone in his plan and covenant. We should do the same. Also, Abraham didn't just tell Ishmael to circumcise himself. He took responsibility for it. Now, how many times do we tell our children or young people they need to pray or read the Bible? Instead, we should be praying and reading the Bible with our children and young people. We all need to take responsibility for the discipleship of those around us. The third way was with his professional obedience. Abraham also took every other male in his household and had them circumcised. This is talking about all the non-family members, including workers, slaves, foreigners, etc. Abraham made a stand to obey God completely, and the other males in his household were not left off the hook just because they weren't part of his biological family. This could speak to how we were to conduct ourselves in our workplace. How can we as Christians use the position that God has given us in our jobs for his honor and his, for his glory? The Lord considers it worship when we are devoted to him at work. We can learn so much about how we're to live into our relationship with God from Abraham. We must obey God completely and immediately, no matter what, no matter how far-fetched it sounds or how hard it will be to accomplish. And that brings us to the second next step on the back of your communication card, which is to obey God immediately and completely, no matter how impossible the task. You know, until now, the covenant has been unilateral and unconditional. Now God was making a partnership with Abraham, and the covenant became bilateral and conditional. Abraham and his descendants would be required to mark or circumcise each male in their household with a sign of the covenant. This was not an option for God's chosen people, but an obligation. Circumcision marked God's people as separated from the world and as his own. They were set apart by God as a holy people 
in a covenant relationship with himself. What was important was that their faith was lived out by obeying the command to be circumcised. Once it was done, there was no turning back. There was no one doing it. And it was not a private experience, but a corporate one. Personal holiness is important, but so is corporate holiness. Covenantal signs are important because they serve as the visible response to being in a relationship with God. They also show that a person is totally committed to that relationship because God commanded them to do it. For the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision was the condition for a person's inclusion into the community of God's chosen people. It was a sign of initiation and participation into a relationship with God and a symbol of subordination to him in that relationship. Later in the Sinai covenant, the sign was the keeping of the Sabbath. In Exodus 31, God said that the keeping of the Sabbath was a sign between God and Israel, which showed their continual participation in the covenant and their subordination to God, the covenant maker. We see in Ezekiel 20 that the violation of the Sabbath was one of the primary reasons for God's judgment against Israel. And later, the sign of the, of the Davidic covenant was the anointing of the Davidic king, signifying that that king was chosen by God. By submitting to the ceremony, the king showed that he recognized his subordination to a divine kingship. You know, today we live under the new covenant, and God still wants his people, us, to be so visibly committed to him that it shows everyone around us whose we are, that we belong to God, and that we follow Christ. The signs of the new covenant are seen as sacraments. Baptism, which is the sign of initiation into the covenant, and communion, the sign of continual participation in the covenant. There are also two other signs that are not sacraments that show we are committed to a relationship with God. In 1 John 3.23, it says this, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. We prove that we are committed to a relationship with God by showing love to one another. And John 15.10 says this, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. We prove that we are committed to a relationship with God by obeying him. Just as circumcision was not a condition of the covenant, but a sign of participation in it, we understand that baptism, communion, loving one another and obedience are not conditions of our salvation, but are the appropriate and expected signs of participation in the new covenant. So what does our salvation cost us? It costs us nothing. What does our faith cost us? It should cost us everything. It should cost us everything that this world offers because they can't offer us what we have in Christ Jesus. And it should cost us all of ourselves all of our will, and that we submit all of ourselves to Christ and allow him to be Lord and master over our lives. In the Old Testament, God wanted the Israelites to not only be circumcised in their flesh, but to have a circumcised heart as well. They had the physical mark of being in a relationship with God, but at times they did not have a circumcision of the heart. They did not submit to God's authority by loving one another and fully obeying him.
If we have a circumcised heart, a purified heart, a sanctified heart, it will be a heart that is in total submission to God's commands, inwardly and outwardly, not just giving lip service, but living out our faith on a daily basis. And that brings us to the last next step on the back of your communication card, which says to have a circumcised heart that is in total submission to God inwardly and outwardly on a daily basis. As the praise team comes forward, leads in a final hymn, final song, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would trust you to do the impossible in our lives. I pray that we would obey you immediately and completely, no matter how impossible the task seems. Lord, I pray that we would have circumcised hearts that are in total submission to you inwardly and outwardly on a daily basis. I pray that your word would lead and guide us as we live out our faith in the world. Give us divine appointments in order to share your gospel with those who need your salvation. Give us boldness to share and strength to pursue holiness daily. In Jesus' name, amen.